Welcome to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast, featuring leadership author and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff, and Barna President, David Kinneman. This podcast delivers unprecedented insights every week into how church leaders are navigating constant change in an era of disruption and discusses new digital tools to help you stay connected in real time to the people in your church. And now, your hosts, Carrie Newhoff and David Kinneman. Welcome to Church Pulse Weekly. It's Carrie Newhoff here, along with David Kinneman, the president of the Barnard Group. David, hello. Hey, Carrie, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it's been a nice season, and um, kids are all busy with school, and and my oldest is out and working, and um, yeah, there's good stuff. Oldest is out and working. That's a yeah. major epoch, man. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It feels it feels like it. Yeah, it's it's been uh, good for her, good for good for us, and uh, she's mostly enjoying her, her her new job. She's working as a a, a researcher in in Stanford, actually wow. coming out of coming out of a, a a science degree, and so she's working on um, on sort of cellular research related to Alzheimer's. I couldn't even explain it more than that, but it's oh my pretty, gosh, pretty neat. yeah, the technical family, David. I'll tell you, <laughs> yeah, nobody understands anyone else's job description. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah. Perfect. Well, it's good to do this with you. And, you know, we are really in a new season. And I think for the first time, church leaders are really starting to think about the future. And it's fuzzy and it's hazy and it's not clear and it's still unstable. But everything is, I think all of us kind of know intuitively it's going to be different. And uh, that's why we're kicking off a series within the Church Pulse Weekly podcast. And this is part one of it. And we're going to talk about making space. We'll start today with making space for the leader, and uh, we're going to flip the mic. You're going to interview me for this one. So, uh, how how you feeling about that? David? Well, I've been I've been uh, sitting at your feet trying to be uh, to be mentored as an interviewer for 18, <laughs> 18 months now. So, <laughs> I've learned a few tricks. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I always love our conversations. Have for years and years and years. So, in a few minutes, I will be the guest, and we're going to talk about. Um, physical space like offices, building campaigns, uh, burnout, rest for leaders, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but we're also going to really be drilling down in this series on things like, well, what about hybrid church? Like we focused so much on digital in the last year and a half. What do our buildings look like coming out of COVID, moving into the new reality, moving into, as, as all of the research has shown, a far more post-Christian America than probably anyone thought was possible in a short 18-month span. Like, you know, America has really fundamentally changed. And we're partnering in these episodes, but also Barna with a much bigger project with the Aspen Group. And so can you tell us a little bit about uh, about their role in all of this? Yeah, happy to. Um, Aspen is a longtime uh, partner and, and even better friends of, of me personally and of our business. And uh, you'll be hearing from Derek here in just a couple of minutes. But um, uh, we we started, uh, well, I want to give a little bit of sort of backstory, which was when I took over Barna Group in um, 2009, you know, I bought Barna, Barna from George Barna and I've been working and being mentored by him. And um, we had a vision of doing, you know, sort of the same things that the company had always done, but to try to do them in new and, and innovative ways. And so we started working on uh, this sort of partnership with, with Aspen uh, to be able to look at um, this idea of, of built spaces and millennials. And 
We did some innovative, like qualitative research, actually going physically to some different spaces and, and, you know, almost like tour, touring old cathedrals and, and new uh, kind of mega church environments. And we took both Christian young people and non-Christian young people. And then we would ask for their reactions, super interesting stuff that we had not quite done before. And then we also did a lot of visual polling and we, it was like at the very beginning of, of well, exactly the very beginning, but, but the height of online surveying where we'd actually use different images and ask people to respond to different images of stained glass or different views of the altar. And so we, we came up with this thing called, uh, we call it making space for millennials. And uh, what was it, that what became a report from Barna, which is really the, the first, the prototype of what we've been doing the last five or six years uh, in terms of these monographs and these reports. So our partnership with, with Aspen ended up becoming um, a real catalyst for the way Barna has, has worked in the last three to three to five years on sort of data journalism and uh, colorful infographics. And we had some very talented uh, data to have now and had then uh, very talented uh, journalists and, you know, sort of video work. And so it was this kind of more holistic way of producing a, a research study rather than just like, you know, writing a book mm-hmm. or doing a talk. Um, and, and so Derek, um, uh, the CEO there, uh, Brad Eisenman, other, others have been um, just great friends and um, we're eager to hear, ha- have you hear from them. But, but, you know, this has been a, a way for, for Barna to sort of serve the church in new ways. And Aspen does uh, incredible work on that front. I remember that report when it came out, making space for millennials. And I remember it just kind of echoing through the whole church because that's where the whole like liturgical and stained glass and sort of the ancient future came about. You look at the work of John Mark Comer, whose uh, interview here on this podcast really kind of took off uh, for this podcast uh, earlier, like I think a month or two ago. And, you know, how he's thinking about the future of the church. So I'm excited for this conversation because. Uh, you know, I'm not in the lead seat anymore. But if I was, I would be thinking about space very, very differently uh, for the team, for people, how it shapes us uh, theologically. So maybe with that in mind, why don't we invite Derek DeGroot from Aspen Group onto Church Pulse Weekly? Uh, Derek, it's so good to have you here. And I would love to ask you a couple of questions, if that's okay. That'd be great. So, you know, historically, building campaigns have been very functional. They've been very like, okay, we got to get this done. We have a limited budget, etc. How are how do you think it would be helpful for church leaders to rethink space and making space as the future arrives? Yeah, well, one of the things that's apparent, I guess, in this newfound complexity of uh, especially post-COVID here is that we're not looking at spaces just as a place to perform ministry program. Mm. And so as architects and designers um, that look at church spaces, we're not just saying, okay, what do you want to accomplish here? Um, But rather, how does space impact the broader opportunity uh, for ministry? And so how does it uh, impact the way we feel? How does it uh, broadcast something to the community? Uh, how does it impact everything all the way to kind of how we're discipled? Um, and so we're starting to look at or, or trying to communicate with churches that space is a, is a golden opportunity as we rethink ministry to kind of just rethink uh, the way we view space as the church. And I really think we're on the precipice of uh, just a lot of, of, of change in how we view buildings in the evangelical world. Well, it's interesting, you know. 
I would perceive that design has become a part of mainstream culture in the last 15 years. Everything from Pinterest to Instagram to you think about how Apple elevated design in the world of tech to Tesla elevating design when it comes to vehicles. And uh, even local coffee shops and restaurants paying way more attention to decor than arguably 20 years ago. I mean, is that a thing or is that just in my head? And how do you think that implicates churches? No, design thinking, I think in a general sense, has definitely taken over the landscape. And, um, you know, as one of the things I think about often is is something we don't think about as the church is just the impact of beauty, for instance. So there's Mm. an aesthetic version of of design that's, um, you know, just coming back into the conversation. Um, But I I think you're right in that um, people are thinking about the impact of design, but not able to maybe apply it to a broader system or, or something as big as the church, you know, so we see it in our individual lives. We see the impact of, of design or aesthetics. um, But we don't know how to translate that to the church and to ministry specifically. Well, it's interesting because I read uh, Eugene Peterson's biography by Wynn Collier this summer, and it was pretty clear from that and other sources that, you know, even Peterson says your theology is shaped by space and place, Yes, which is fascinating. So just clarify for those who may not be familiar with the Aspen Group, how exactly do you serve the church? Yeah, well, Aspen Group designs and builds church spaces. So uh, our reason for existing, our mission is to create space for ministry impact. Hmm. Um, so to live into that kind of unique calling, uh, we have diverse teams of, of, of architects, interior designers, developers, construction managers, um, a lot of the experts that don't play nice together uh, <laughs> to try to benefit uh, the church to be more innovative together. And we're all united around a passion and commitment to, uh, to serve the church by creating spaces uh, that help churches live into their mission. Hmm. That's super helpful. So I think leaders can take a lot of notes too. Maybe it's just a modest renovation you're thinking about or recalibrating space. I know tons of leaders built out studios in the last 18 months. Uh, so I think this is going to be a good mini series. David, any thoughts about the partnership with, uh, with Derek and the folks at the Aspen Group? Well, I just remember uh, I was thinking back in, in the last few minutes here that the very first in-person meeting we had with Aspen uh, and the team. I actually, I'm a, I'm a big Lego fan, and <laughs> I've got my whole, my whole plans are to do, have an, a, you know, an exit from barn and just be a Lego influencer someday. And uh, so that's my, that's my whole. You heard strategy. it here first, guys. Just see yeah. But, <laughs> so we'll see, we'll see how that all go works for me. But I do, I do have my whole office decorated out with some of the cool architectural Legos and all the rest. And if I hadn't been a researcher, I would have been a pastor. And if I wasn't a pastor, I would have been an architect. <laughs> So, uh, so my friends at Aspen, uh, they're, they're just keeping a spot warm for me, I, I hope. But um, the very first in-person meeting, I, I literally was like, hey, these guys are architects. I think I'm going to bring my, my architectural Legos to the, to the session. It was just up the hill uh, from Ventura, our offices. And I set them all out. And I, I remember everyone was just sort of like, who is this, this absolute nutball who, who has got his PowerPoint slides and his Legos? <laughs> so... Anyway, um, we've had a long, long and fun, fun history of working together, and the team at Aspen, as we said, is just a cl- class act, cool, cool folks, and uh, really driven to this idea of, you know, we we make we make these buildings, and then our buildings make us. Something I, I've heard from Derek, and um, yeah. and so it's cool, cool stuff. Um, Derek, as part of this six week series, 
um, as we're sort of kicking it off today. I know you you guys at Aspen have a, a really great idea uh, in, in terms of how to serve into church leaders. And again, we're talking making space for all sorts of things, making space for leaders, uh, the, the places we work, how we, how we as leaders work. Um, that's really the subject of, of how I'll be talking to Carrie here in a couple of minutes, as well as all sorts of things about discipleship and next gen, making space for these important themes um, especially coming out of a disruptive time like um, like the pandemic and like how, how are we going to think about the built spaces and and much more uh, that goes with that. So what do you guys have in mind in terms of uh, an offer for the Church Pulse Weekly listeners? Yeah, well, for Pastor Appreciation Month this October, uh, we're giving away copies of Carrie's new book. Um, so it's a limited offer. Uh, anyone who visits our website at aspengroup.com slash churchpulse can submit their information to receive a copy of At Your Best. That's a really cool offer. Thank you so yeah. much, Derek. You bet. And uh, just 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 one more time for listeners. So t- tell us where to go again. Aspengroup.com slash Church Pulse. Sweet. And, um, and so you're giving away books and uh, no strings attached. That's awesome. No strings attached. No. And apparently they're worth like $10,000 a copy or something. <laughs> so this is a really big offer. This is really huge. <laughs> Uh, well, there's going to be a golden ticket in a few of them. No, there's not, but you never know. There should be. Yeah. And you can find out more if you're curious about what Aspen Group does and you want to get some ideas. You can not only get a copy of my new book there, but you can find out more by going to aspengroup.com slash churchpulse. And that'll sort of be the home anchor page for everything we talk about over the next six weeks. Derek DeGroote, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Now, David, well, let's see what happens. You're going to interview me. All right. So the roles are reversed and I get to sit in the interviewer seat and talk with my dear friend, Karen Newhoff, about uh, about all that he's learned. We've had the privilege of working now for uh, more than 18 months on this podcast together. And uh, man, I've learned a lot about interviewing. I'm sure I'll, I'll be able to put just a couple of those insights into practice today, but um, don't judge me too harshly. <laughs> I learn a lot from you, man. You always ask great questions. It's like, I'm the talker. It's You're a little bit like Tony, my wife, you know? She won't say a lot, but when she does, everybody sh- just shuts up and listens. Oh, that's nice of, you, nice of you to say. Well, we've had the privilege of of hosting this podcast and helping tens of thousands of leaders through this last uh, 18 months. And sometimes we forget that, you know, sort of your expertise and what you've been doing and trying to help leaders, you know, on your, on your podcast, um, helping leaders understand, you know, leadership and how it works and hearing from some of the very best leaders. Uh, you're a type of researcher too, aren't you? You've, you've, you listen and, and I think you're such a great interviewer. So just quick uh, refresher for those who haven't heard much about your background, but best-selling leadership author, speaker, podcaster, former attorney, uh, you were a, a church leader in the Toronto area for many, many years. Uh, your podcast, blog, and online content are accessed by leaders over one and a half million times uh, each month, which just means that you know your 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 family is very active in in accessing. Oh, my dad doesn't sleep; he's just clicking on everything I produce. It's crazy. <laughs> It sounds, it sounds about like my parents. Uh, he uh-huh. speak, you speak, uh, Carrie speaks to leaders around the world about leadership, change, and personal growth. Your two most recent books are Didn't See It Coming. And the most recent book, which we'll spend most of our time today talking about is At Your Best, How to Get Time, Energy, and Priorities Working in Your Favor. Uh, so welcome to Church Pulse Weekly, Carrie. Oh, thanks. It's nice to be a guest. I often listen to this show, so I appreciate it a lot, David. <laughs> Thank well, you, you should recommend it to your yeah. friends. You should recommend yeah, it to your I friends. Yeah, I will. I will. That's a good idea. <laughs> Um, okay, so I feel like, you know, the, the first question I've been working on this one for a while is um, I just want to start with like some gotcha questions, which is, you know, 
uh, I feel like, you know, we've got some softballs here, but I want to just with some sort of gotcha questions, like what gives you the right? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, yes, there are no rights, only privileges. How's that? Good, good. Perfect, Is that good? Perfect, perfect. Did I pass? All right. Perfect. Well, so um, we're talking uh, in this series about making space for for leaders, making space where we've spent so much of our time in this podcast talking about digital uh, digital yeah. work and, you know, the sort of shift to digital church. And and today we really want to talk about the importance for leaders to make space for rest and for renewal, uh, to make space for for community and friendships and the importance of physical space in that particular part of a leader's journey. So let's start with this. Why is physical space so important for finding rest and connecting with people? Well, I find, you know, the most important work I have done as a pastor and even what I'm doing right now is it takes a lot of thought. Like when you're pumping out a message weekend after weekend after weekend, um, you know, it's kind of easy at first, you think, because you use all your good stories and all your good illustrations and all the stuff. And then you do that for like, I, I preached regularly for almost 30 years. And it's like, wow, told that story before, <laughs> preached that message before. And it takes a lot of what Cal Newport would say, deep work. And I think it was very early on in my ministry that I kind of discovered, oh, space and the ability to generate uh, sermons that connect, to create a compelling vision, to align a team. Like that is very deep work. And I found I couldn't do it in most traditional office settings. Uh, even when I was in law, that, that year that I was in law, I would often squirrel away into a corner of the office and eventually they gave me my own office and like I would close the door and just kind of, you know, I got to focus. Like if I'm going to do well in court tomorrow, I've really got to pay attention. So early on, like when I was in my 20s, I was paying attention to space and I've always been very impacted by that. So what it looked like when I started in ministry, the three churches that I was a part of were so small and had no budget. So they couldn't afford heat in the winter. And of course, I live in Canada. So that's a no-go as far as like office space. And they didn't have office space because they were basically unchanged for the last hundred years, you know, other than a couple of updates and they ran power to them. But there was no viable office space, no air conditioning in the summer, no heating in the winter. So I worked out of my house. So I've been doing like remote work for <laughs> since the 90s. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money. You know what ministry pays when you first start out. So uh, I carved out a corner in the basement with my Ikea desk from my high school years, which I took from my parents' house, and uh, a little area rug and a chair and a computer and a dial-up internet connection. And that's where I started officing. And the only part that was good about that office was that I was away from the noise. And that allowed me to focus and start really working on the deep work that I think the work that we do in ministry requires. It seems to me like the pandemic um, has has focused us on sort of personal space, at-home space, productive space. Yeah. Um, w w were there any specific ways you use the pandemic uh, to sort of focus in on either productive space or personal space? I feel like we were kind of pandemic ready in that respect uh, as a church, you know, connects us. One of the last things I did as lead pastor was set up our broadcast location and we overinvested in digital technology. Um, but I had always been a two or three office person. 
So uh, we built this right after, like if you're watching by video or you've seen my videos, you'll, you'll notice I always seem to be in the same context. Well, that's simply my office. And I always had an office at home. As for the last five, six, seven years of being a lead pastor, I would work from home on a laptop, but I built myself as our kids got older and my oldest moved out. I reclaimed one of the bedrooms and I'm like, oh yeah, now I actually have an office <laughs> and it was great. And then about five years ago, uh, we retrofitted some of my basement. This is actually my basement. And we retrofitted it for my office as I sort of moved into a new era. So I was already used to uh, this space. It was well-equipped, hardwired internet connection. So when the pandemic hit, we just kind of flipped a switch and uh, it was, it's, it's, it's been great. But I, I would say I have worked like with a remote team and from uh, multiple offices and remote offices for, for a long, long time before the pandemic. So that part of it didn't feel hard. And, and I know a lot of other people have done what I did years ago, found a bedroom, found a corner of the house, found, you know, added on or whatever. And it's like, well, now I have a home office. But yeah, this was part of the woodwork before that. So this isn't really like a design and, you know, architecture and, and, uh, you know, uh, like, like, you know, your, your, your expertise is related to leadership and, and coaching leaders, but what's one or two sort of things you've learned about, about your, you said you have multiple offices, like what are, what's one or two or three things you've learned about how to best set up an office to be productive? I think the best space is the space that works for you as a leader. So that's not really a good theological principle. Hey, whatever works for you, you know, that's great with me. But I think it's a really good principle as far as designing your own space. So I would say I would recommend that every leader find the space that gives them the least amount of distractions. There is evidence that if you get a single interruption, and let's say you're working on Sunday's message, because most a lot of preachers listening to this show. So you're working on Sunday's message. That single knock at the door, that like text that distracted you, it can take as much as 25 minutes for you to refocus on your thinking. Cal Newport's written about this extensively. He talks about it, the hive mind, and we're multitasking and we're task switching. And that just doesn't work when you're actually trying to, you know, do an exegesis of Ezekiel or trying to figure out what that has to say to the 21st century. So it can take 25 minutes for your mind to refocus. And I think as we all know, David, like sometimes that, that idea you were you almost had, but you hadn't quite written down when you were interrupted, sometimes they don't come back. Like sometimes you're like, now where was I? And you're like, oh, I have no idea. And you don't get those ideas back. So I think distraction-free is really important. Also fully realize not everybody has a luxury of having a house with an extra room or a church with a budget to do any decor. But um, a really good, relatively low-budget hack is to find no noise-canceling headphones. So, you know, Beats makes them, Bose makes them, Apple sort of makes them with these AirPods. But if you can just get a really good pair of headphones that kind of tunes out the world, you can listen to nothing sometimes. It does two things. Number one, it, it, it um, gets rid of the background noise. Number two, it, uh, it really is a, a signal to people that you're busy. Because if you've got full over-ear headphones on, people are far less likely to disturb you. So if you're in that cubicle or your office is hoteling or you're working in a coffee shop, uh, you know, that'll help. I've never been able to work in coffee shops. I have friends who can do that. I am not able to do that. I just can't focus. I'm too ADD. So my offices, I used to have one at the church when I was on staff at the church and then one here at home. 
Uh, but even now, I'll, I'll shift four or five times a day into different places, the front porch, the back porch, the fire pit. Uh, we built a pavilion out last year, uh, last, this past summer, I should say, or, or here in the office where I'm kind of bunkered down for the winter. And, um, you know, just focus on, on, you know, what aesthetic is productive for you. And the more I talk to leaders, the more I realize a lot of us are really impacted by environment more mm. than we think. Yeah. Like, look at you, you got a beautiful office. Yeah. And I remember when you moved into those offices, you're like, Carrie, you, you got to see this space that we landed in Ventura. It's amazing. But there is some kind of connection between physical space and creativity and physical space and productivity. What do you think is uh, most often wrong with physical space and productivity or physical space and, and you know, sort of being goal oriented or, or the, the work that needs to get done? What, what's wrong with physical spaces? I think when you look at most church design, um, someone with a really good design aesthetic never got a hold of the blueprints or the final picture. So you think about stereotypical church space, often cost is an issue. Uh, you end up with fluorescent lights that buzz or some kind of inferior lighting or not, not very optimal lighting. Um, people don't think about paint color. I've always thought about it this way, and I'm not like a design person. There's a lot of people listening to this who could like design amazing space. I can't design it. I just appreciate it when it's well-designed. And um, paint is the same color. It's, it's the same cost, whether you pick a, a gross color or an amazing color. So what I tend to do, because I'm not very good at coming up with designs like this, I, I just get friends or family to come along and advise me. And sometimes we'll hire a designer and say, how do you build this out? So even on our first building project that I embarked on in ministry in 2003, one of the rules was when we opened up the first building um, was no fluorescent lights in the office space, just none. And then let's design the kids space so it's actually attractive so that parents want to drop their kids off. Now, you know, that was 20 years ago. I would, I would not build it the same way because things have changed over the last 20 years. When we designed Connexus, it was the same kind of thing. It's like, we really want this to have a comfortable vibe, a place where you want to hang out. And you don't need to break the bank to do it. Like you're going to buy a desk, might as well buy a nice one. You're going to paint it a color, might as well figure out a color that actually is calming or, or conducive to uh, the things that you want to do. So I think if churches took design, and, and I've seen a big change in the last five, 10 years, Churches are taking design a lot more seriously. And again, if you're on a very limited budget, this does not have to break the bank. You're buying desks, you're, you're painting walls, you're installing light fixtures, and LED lights have completely changed the game. Um, pretty much all of my house is LED now. And I mean, that's you can change the color on them, you can change the hue on them, you can change the dimming level on them. And it's a little bit more money up front than incandescent light, but it's going to save you a boatload of money down the road. Speaking of more money up front, one of my life lessons uh, was when we remodeled our house. We started re we bought a house here in Ventura in '97, uh, and then um, after it was a, just a, a track home built in the '80s. And um, and uh, a friend of mine, Eric Corbett, I learned so much about design from him. And and he said, you know, people spend all their money on fixtures and finishes and, you know, the actual construction, but they don't pay for the ideas. And I, I, that really struck me. And so I, I spent real money with him to try to help design stuff. And I actually was like a whole education in, you know, Southern California craftsman style. And we laid, I, I laid wood floors and I've done a lot of the finished carpentry. It's actually one of my, my hobbies is to do that. But, um, 
you know, we were talking about different places to put lights. And he said, you know, you're going to want these five different combinations of lighting in one room. And I remember my, um, my contractor was, was sort of like a gas that we would, you know, spend, spend that money or, or design in such a way that, you know, we would do that. But every single day of my life since then, you know, we've used those different combinations because, you know, you use a family room in different ways. You know, you want it nice and bright for game time or nice and quiet for movie time, quiet and down low and, um, different, you know, hosting people. And so, um, yeah, it's been, we've been in the same house for 25 years and, um, I, you know, just got back from a couple of weeks of trip and I was just really admi- admiring some of the decisions we made that, you know, we, we paid for the ideas that made for the space to be as comfortable as, as it is today. You know, and you are kind of into design, so it would be like more than I am. I appreciate it, but I'm, I'm not very good at the design stage, but I would say the same thing. There is someone in your church. There is someone like my sister, Jen is great at design. She helped us with some interior renovations with our backyard this summer and she thinks of things I would never think of. And I have a hard time conceptualizing like what is on the page on the drawing to what it's going to look like. She's so good at it. And Tony and I learned as, as really cheap marriage therapy. If you bring in a third party, <laughs> it just helps so much because we usually, if we get some good design advice, uh, we can agree on things. And then you create space that people actually want to be in, which is something you have to think about for church. Like I think the design aesthetic, Apple really changed the game on that about 15 years ago when they started to really move away from just functionality and into design. And you look at everything from Tesla and how automotive design has evolved and even coffee shops. Like, you you know, coffee shops, it used to be a 25 cent cup of coffee or dollar cup of coffee in this diner, which has its own kind of cool aesthetic now. But, you know, you're, if you're opening a coffee shop and you're charging five bucks for your pour over, then you're going to have a really nice aesthetic. Restaurants are the same thing. And I think people under 40 really expect that. So if you're moving into a church and it's green carpeting and pink pews and dusty rose walls, people are kind of like, what era? Like, I always think churches have a year to them. You walk into a church, it's like, smells like 2012 or... Uh, this smells like 2001 or wow, here come the 90s, they're back. And, uh, you know, if you're a young parent and you're dropping off your kids, you want to have some confidence that the toys have been disinfected. You know, my wife, Tony, she has this thing where if we go to a restaurant and the bathrooms are a mess, she's like, I don't want to go back because I assume the kitchen is just like the bathrooms. And so you're communicating through the way you design your church, what you value and how you value people. And I think that's really, really important for church leaders. And you may disagree with that theologically. You may say, well, the early church didn't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah, but you're reaching people who are used to evaluating things through that lens. And I think you have to pay attention to that. So let's uh, change gears just a little bit. We've talked about a lot of physical space and productivity in some of this this last few minutes, just talking about you know diff- different sort of d- design principles. But I want to talk about r- r- sort of our need as leaders for relationship, especially as we're all facing kind of levels of exhaustion and, you know, um, you know, your book has come for me at just, just the right time, you know, really enjoying it. And, and I'm thinking about, you know, as someone in, in my mid forties and thinking about what's next, you know, how, how to really get the best out of, out of life and what God has, how to be a good steward. But um, I want to ask this a couple different ways, but let's start it this way. You know, what, what, for you, um, 
was was sort of behind the book? Like, what was the first moment you had this idea of I need to write this book at your best? You know, what what sort of went into that that decision to you know, book writing is such a Herculean effort. What went into that decision for you and, and, and what do you hope leaders can take away from it? Well, let me give Mark Batterson some credit because about, I think in 2015, I spoke to his staff uh, in DC and uh, it, was, it was a good event. And I introduced some of the principles that eventually would morph a thousand times over into what became at your best. And Mark pulled me aside when I was literally walking back to my seat after delivering the talk. And he's like, Carrie, that's amazing. That has to be in a book. And what I shared that day for the first time in DC were some of the principles that I had used to rebuild my life over the previous nine years after my episode of burnout in 2006. And so I had burned out. I burned out without a pandemic, without like smartphones. Like I I did it all by myself because I had a decade of growth. And I, I had a terrible equation of I'll just work more hours because God has sent us more people. And that doesn't scale. So my body kind of quit and I went into a season of burnout. And it was really, really painful. There was a couple of months, David, where I thought it's over. I'm not coming back. You know, I'm, I'm 40 years old and my life is finished. By the grace of God, I did come back, but I was also chastened enough to realize I can't live this way. Like if God sends us more people, I can't just work more hours. It was killing my family. I, I was not present at home and it just about killed me. I lost all my passion, all my energy. I was, it was awful. So I started writing down, like I started creating through books and, and coaching and counseling a new approach to life. I thought, okay, if that was the old normal, what is my new normal? And so I started to think about time, energy, and priorities differently. And I just created this little system for myself that started over time with a lot of trial and error, started to work. And to the point where by 2014, 2015, almost a decade after my burnout, the top question I was being asked was, how do you get it all done? You're leading a church full time. Uh, You're blogging. You started a podcast. You're flying around the world. Your marriage seems better. You seem to have a great relationship with your kids. Like, you seem rested, like what is going on? And at first I, I thought, well, you know, I just made some changes here and there. And then I thought, well, I wonder if I could, wonder if these principles are codifiable and I wonder if I can teach them to others. So it was really at, at uh, National Community Church with Mark Batterson. I taught them for the first time. And then a year later, I turned it into a course called The High Impact Leader. That helped thousands of people. And we were seeing results in thousands of leaders' lives so I took all the insight of teaching this material on the road and in the course for a few years, totally revamped it, developed it further, thought about further learnings, incorporated some research and produced at your best. So that's the, that's the story behind the book. And what's exciting me is we're hearing every day now from leaders who are saying, I read your book in two days. I'm already seeing the difference, which blew me away. I thought it would take a week or two to work through all the material and ideas. They're blowing through it and saying it's it's making an uh, almost instant difference, which makes me excited. What do you think is the difference? You know, um, y- your work is in the category of of sort of you know sort of self help, um, life advice, life coaching. Uh, Barna's work is not exactly that space, but but in a similar sure. way, we're trying to we're trying to help leaders take stock of their reality and then do things differently, think and act differently. And I've thought about this question a lot. I don't, I don't have a good answer is why I'm asking you. Um, what is the difference 
in your experience, this is now your, your second big book on on productivity, and you've been in the sort of the life change business for a long time. What do you think is the difference between someone sort of being mildly interested or superficially interested or or on some basis reading your book and then actually putting into practice these these things? It's not the only way to do, you know, to help help with time, energy, and priorities, but it is a way and it's a good way. You know, what do you think is the difference as as, as listeners are gonna go? Check out the book. Use use the the content. Do you do you have any ideas about ways to really get the most out of um, you know trying to make deep whole life change? Yeah, it's it's a really good point because I'm not the first one in the time management space. <laughs> you know, there's a million books out there. It's a little bit a little bit like the uh, diet industry or cookbooks or money management. It's like there's so many books out there. What do I have to say? It was, a, it was a really good question. And I asked myself that question because I've read widely in the space. I have applied, you know, David Allen, Juliet Funt, Cal Newport. I mean, they've all written, Greg McEwen has, they've all written so well in the space. So what's the difference? Well, number one, I trained several thousand leaders and saw that they had achieved similar results. Number two, I don't claim it's the only time management book out there. I think probably the unique contribution is I tried to make it simple. I tried to make it to the point where you really could read the book and codify things. Because sometimes I've read time management books that feel like, oh gosh, this is a graduate degree here and I've got to spend six six months of my life understanding the principles to put them together. This was designed to hit the street quickly, to hit your life Monday. You read it on the weekend, you're making changes on Monday. Um, Secondly, the, the concept of energy management. So it's managing time, energy, and priorities. The time management section is fairly short, and I'm going to assume a lot of people have, have done some good time management over the years. But the energy management seems to be the Archimedes lever that changes everyone's life, and it changed mine. And the, the principle there, I'll just share it in a nutshell, is that you have three to five peak hours in a day. Researchers would agree that most of us You have 24 equal hours in a day, but not all hours feel equal or produce equally. So I'm a morning person. By four o'clock in the afternoon, I have three brain cells left. And most people can point to, like for you, do you have one or two hours in the afternoon or evening or morning where you're just like, ah, kill me now, it's over. Like, I can't can't think anymore. What what would your time be? Because it's pretty predictable for most people. Yeah, my peak hours are uh, about from 10.37 to about 10.43. (laughs) <laughs> so you have three to six minutes of peak hours a day. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, no, I think I'm, what, I'm, I'm at my best in the mornings for a few, for a few hours. And I also have a, a really good run, I think in the afternoons as well. Yeah. Um, it depends a little on, on the day or the time zone I'm in, et cetera. But I also have, sure. I found actually in my early career and I, I sort of paid the piper for this later, but I, I really enjoyed working from like 10 PM till about 1 AM. And, you know, it was, it wasn't really super sustainable, but I'm a night owl enough to like, I wrote so much and learned so much and, and, you know, did just a ton of work and original thinking because it was nice and quiet uh, for me. Exactly. So yeah, it's, um, I've always tried to be a morning person, you know, like an early morning person. I've like, I've, my string is about four days in a row where I got up early and I was like, this is a new me. And then by day five, it was just, <laughs> why, why am I trying to change my actual body clock? But I've always been a night owl. 
See, and that's that's a really good point. Um, you're a night owl. I'm not a night owl. Like after nine o'clock at night, I'm struggling to keep my eyes open. And four to six in the afternoon is sort of the witching hour for me. That's where I, I really struggle. But I'm great at at like until about 11 a.m. most days. I've, that's my peak productivity. And my quiet comes from 5 a.m. until about 8 a.m. when the rest of the world is still slowly waking up and not texting, messaging people. And so that's the key. The key here is it doesn't matter when your time is. You only have a few peak productive hours in a day. Most of us spend them unthinkingly. I used to be, even though I'm a morning person, I used to give most of my mornings away in breakfast meetings. And then I realized that breakfast meetings don't help you get your sermon written. Breakfast meetings don't help you uh, get your vision mapped out for the next little while. Breakfast meetings don't give you the time that you need to solve the biggest problems that you're facing as an organization. So I started canceling breakfast meetings and started using that time in the morning to solve the biggest problems, write the content that needed to be written. And that's when I saw exponential results in terms of my productivity and also my effectiveness. Because there is some correlation, it's not a total correlation, but if you preach better, your church will go better. If you are clear on the vision and your team is aligned, things are going to go better. Or even if you're trying to solve a stewardship issue, which is not the issue facing most churches right now, but you know, you're like, okay, we need a whole new strategy for donor development. Um, that will take two or three hours of brainstorming. And for me, morning might be a really good time to think creatively around, around it. For you, it might be 11 p.m. at night. But if you squander those hours, that is when you don't have any return on investment. And you go home every day at five o'clock, six o'clock, and your biggest work is unresolved. It's undone. So you're thinking about it at dinner. You go to bed going, I got to get that done. I got to get that done. And you live that way day after day after day. It leaves you overwhelmed and overcommitted and overworked. So connect that back. You, you just said that it's not just time management, although you said it's, it's energy management. And we've talked a lot about sort of time of day for, yeah. just for me and our listeners. Like what is the energy management part of that equation? So the energy management part of that is stewarding those peak hours. So I divide, I encourage everyone to divide their day into three zones, green, yellow, and red. Green being those peak hours where you're really at your best, ideas are flowing. Um, you got relatively high energy. You're in a pretty good mood, pretty good headspace. And for most people, that, that averages out to three to five hours in a day. Your red zone is what we talked about already. That's when you're tired. That's when you're like, I need caffeine or I need a nap. I don't know which one, but... For me, that's four to six. And then everything else is yellow. And yellow zone, your energy's not at its peak, but it's not bottomed out. You're not at the low trough either. So then, you know, what, what you do is you figure out, okay, what is my most important value-added activity? For a lot of preachers, it's the weekend sermon. It's series design. It's figuring out, okay, this is still a fog of leadership. What are we going to do in 2022 to reach more people, to mm-hmm. disciple people? that deep work that you have to do. What you should do is you should safeguard those, those best hours, your green zone, and do what you're best at, that most important work, the stuff that you are uniquely gifted to do when you are at your best. Because when you get that done, first of all, quality of work is going to be better. There's a huge difference between starting a message on a Monday in your green zone and not getting it done all week and doing it on a Saturday afternoon when you should be playing with your kids. And we've all been there right? Where it's like the message still isn't done and you apologize to your family. Well, your your sermon's not going to be that good. It's just not going to be that great. You do that repeatedly 
you will never become a world-class communicator. You'll not mm. even be the best you can be. So by moving, by thinking about, okay, I have a finite energy. It's not a scarcity mindset. It actually produces far more than anything, but I've got three to five hours in a day. So this morning I was working on a talk that I'm giving to an online uh, webinar for, well, I think between the two of them, several thousand leaders, uh, got that talk written. I was working on some other writing projects that I was working on, and then I was preparing to shoot video, and now I'm doing an interview. That's a good day's work. This afternoon, I can get to Slack. This afternoon, I can get to my email inbox. This afternoon, I can fill out that expense report. And then in my red zone, I should either take a nap, do some basic admin, or uh, call it a day and go home. But because the big rocks got moved when my energy was at its peak, I did better work. I got the most important stuff accomplished. And this is, David, this is what I see killing leaders day in and day out. Because most of us, and the biggest section of the book is on priorities, most of us get killed by other people's priorities because we have the best intention. Okay, it's Monday morning. I am a morning person. I'm writing my message. I'm getting this series outlined. And then you look down at your phone, you have five texts, and then you've got a crisis and a pastoral emergency. And then someone knocks at your door and someone says, can I have five minutes of your time? And then there's a meeting that popped up because this person is struggling with X. So now you got to go to the meeting. And Friday rolls around. You haven't done anything on your to-do list. You're still cramming for Sunday. And you rinse, lather, and repeat next week. Like that's a recipe for burnout. And so the book is designed for you to take control of your time before other people do. Yeah, so good. So good. I'm hoping leaders are just leaning in and and uh, just th- thinking and, and imagining what that kind of set of priorities might look like. Let's do this. Um, I want to talk about just some stats. I'm going to do like a little bit of a lightning round with you on okay. five Great. key stats. And then I just want like a couple a couple ideas, uh, you know, a minute or two on, on response. So, so we've been talking about satisfaction with time and productivity. One in three pastors say they're not satisfied with how they spend their time during a week, which is, which is, you know, it's not a majority. Three in five are saying they are comfortable with it, but um, we've talked a lot about that. So that's, I think, en- enough there. I'm surprised it's not higher, to be honest with you. But most of the people I talk to are really struggling with their with their time. So, um, but even so, you may have a rhythm that works, but is it your ideal rhythm? Are you really, like, if you're not, if you're not seeing impact in your ministry, could a small adjustment in how you spend your time and energy and how you deal with priorities, other people's priorities, namely, make a difference? That would be the question I would ask. Yeah, good. Um, we've talked about this stat a lot, but let's repeat it here and hit your reaction since you're in the hot seat today. 29% of pastors, according to our most recent uh, data uh, earlier this year, said they'd given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year. I empathize. I get it. I almost quit a bunch of times too. And I didn't leave. I didn't quit. I, I set up a succession plan and moved out. So I get it. And I guess my question would be, you know, here's my question. Would moving to a different job solve your problems? Because the challenge is, first of all, you could be running away from your calling. Secondly, um, you bring you wherever you go. And if you haven't figured out how to stop other people from hijacking your priorities, if you're not managing your energy and your time well, uh, are you just setting yourself up to fail in a whole new setting? Why not stay there? Try to master some principles, get healthy. And first of all, you're probably going to enjoy your job more. Secondly, if you're in a healthy place, you'll be in a much better position to see whether this is indeed uh, 
a longer calling on your life. Like don't quit on a bad day, quit on a good day. So get yourself to a good day first. And then with wise counsel, a lot of prayer, a lot of consideration, uh, make some better decisions about your future rather than quitting and hoping that everything somehow is going to magically be better in the future because it probably won't be. Uh, that's such great advice. At the same time, you know, you step back from leading Conexus at a, a time when a lot of people might have said, you know, sort, sort of you're reaching uh, your peak or, you know, you're sort yeah. of, you you know, it's just, that's a whole, maybe a whole different podcast, but um, what's one or two words of advice for those leaders who maybe should really consider uh, walking back or it's like, it doesn't change their calling, but maybe this is a season of God moving them, moving them on to something else. Yeah, to a different assignment. No, I get that. And so, first of all, it wasn't a bad day. It was a great day. Secondly, I have been concerned about succession for years in the church. And I had turned 50 when I handed things over to Jeff Brody. And I kind of thought I had five years left in me of like really good, capable leadership. But the church was experiencing double-digit growth. We had money in the bank. And I thought, you know, I'm going to give it to him now when it's strong. And that gives Jeff a year or two to make some mistakes. The place isn't going to fall apart. Uh, he didn't, by the way. He he did a has done an incredible job. So he didn't need that kind of slack. But there was slack in the system in case he needed it. He didn't need it. And uh, I would rather do that than risk it and hand over something that was limping or fading or... Um, or struggling a little bit a few years later. And I think a lot of pastors wait until it's too late for succession. So that was the number one critique, comment I got about leaving when I did six years ago is, my gosh, it's just really at its peak. And it's like, yep, quit while you're ahead. Don't, you know, hand over something strong to the next generation, not something anemic. Yeah, such good advice. All right, we got a few more stats to hit and then I've got a few more questions I wanna ask you, but um, sure. let's talk about relationships. Um, three in five uh, pastors said they frequently or sometimes feel lonely. Yeah, yeah. They, I get it. I get lonely too sometimes. So you feel uh, do you feel more I, lonely, more more lonely or less lonely since you've left sort of full time pastoral ministry? Well, that's really interesting. I was mentoring a, a group of pastors who came up and they flew up to my place and we were together this past week. And um, one of the things we said as we sat around the fire late at night in my backyard is you find out who your friends are when you're done ministry. And, you know, Tony and I always have this thing. It's like, are they really our friends or are they just my friends because I'm their pastor? And uh, you'll be shocked to discover that you have a few friends, but most people are just there because you hold a title, you yeah. hold a position. And so fortunately we have some really, really good friendships, but Honestly, that's an area I'm working on, David, because I know a million people and I have a few close friendships, but I could probably use one or two more. So I'm, I'm working on that right now with a counselor and some really good friends and, and trying to uh, carve, because I, I, yeah, trying to carve some deeper pathways in that field in our lives. So we're not bereft of friendship, but uh, my buddy Frank and I have told the story a few times, but he lives in Atlanta and we've been texting each other every day for 18 months, just a quick check-in every morning because at the beginning of the pandemic, we both felt very lonely being cut off of our, you know, regular things. But don't, don't, don't confuse followers and attenders with friends. Friends are people who know you inside and out and who you spend regular time with. 
So yeah, I identify and you, you don't need to be lonely, but it is work. I know my mom dealt a lot with that when my dad stepped back. He, my dad's an amazing leader, Gary Kenneman and Marilyn Kenneman stepped back from his church at about the same time you did. He was maybe a few years older, but he, he sort of left, you know, um, at a, at a good time for that church. Um, and, and didn't hang on too long. Um, and, but my mom especially dealt with a lot of that kind of questions of identity and people that apparently weren't her friends like she thought they were her friends once she was not the senior pastor's wife anymore. Uh, so interesting dynamics there. I'll share one more thought on that. Uh, I think it was John Ortberg or either John Ortberg uh, channeling Dallas Willard who said, intimacy is shared experience. And one of the things Tony and I have focused on back to the physical space where we started is creating the kinds of environments that people feel comfortable in. So, you know, we bought a boat a few years ago. We've been boaters for about 15 years. Everybody loves a friend with a boat. That's like a shared experience, something you can do, fun with friends. I have friends who fly in from out of town and they're like, we still talk about that day on the water. We remodeled our backyard this year and put in like a hot tub and some space and a new fire pit. And now hosting groups for the last few months here, it's been incredible because the space does what it's supposed to do. And people feel very special. They want to hang out. They want to linger. And so, hey, you can do that on a milk crate around, you know, wherever you want. We all did that in college. But I think if you get to a certain stage, if you create the space, um, it makes it easier to have that kind of relationship. And so we're really enjoying the season that we're in. Last set of stats here, um, only one quarter of pastors, uh, 27% say they talk with someone about their emotional and mental health at least two or more times a month. Um, 14% say never, you know, like more than half of pastors are sort of less than one th- less than monthly um, talking to others about their mental and emotional health. And this, this stat just, just shocks me. Only half of Protestant pastors say they... Um, uh, over half of Protestant pastors say they never meet with a counselor. Yeah. Danger, danger, danger. Like, um, that blows me away. And then you wonder why you see so many pastors implode. Um, I would say the conversation about my emotional, spiritual, and uh, relational health is pretty much daily. Um, with people close to me, and with a counselor, uh, I see a counselor semi-regularly, sometimes for checkups, sometimes for live issues. Uh, it's just, you can't do this alone. And I think we live in an age where an era where human relationships are going through a difficult transition and we're less, we're more connected than we used to be, but we're less connected than we used to be. So we're more, more connected digitally, but we're terribly lonely people. And I think those are the conditions in which terrible stories happen and sad stories happen. I think that is the pathway to some kind of moral failure. I think that can be the pathway. Maybe there's no moral failure, but you just kind of collapse inside and you go, you know what, I'm done. And you didn't need to be done. So I'd really be careful about those those tendencies. Um, what's your What's your vision for leaders generally and for pastors in the next 24 months? What, what brings you hope and how would you encourage listeners today? I want them to find, and this is why I wrote At Your Best, I want them to find a sustainable pace. Like ask yourself, could you, if, if you had to keep this pace going for the next two years, could you do it? 
And I think most of us would say, hey, long before the pandemic, the answer was mm, not sure. And now the answer is, no, I can't do it anymore. And you can find a sustainable pace. Uh, and you you need to do that for the sake of your family. It, it will make you a better Christian. It will make you a better spouse. It will make you a better parent if you have kids. It'll make you a better leader. It'll make you a nicer human. Um, and And often leaders, we just fall on the sword and we don't need to. And we talk about, oh, we're sacrificing, you know. Well, if you sacrifice your health, you, you don't have much to give. You can only get what you give. Like generosity assumes that you have something to give. And if you're running on empty and you have nothing to give. So I want to see pastors get internally healthy. Yeah. Um, I want to see them in a place where they are alive and vibrant and celebrating, living in a way today that will help them thrive tomorrow. And if we can do that, we then have a baseline to be able to look at all the leadership issues that we're facing. But if you're running on empty, that's hard. That's awesome. Uh, such an inspiring vision. And I think some of the things we've learned here in this podcast the last 18 months, like if if we thought that ministry was just getting people in a building, if we thought that ministry was uh, just having a growing church, if we thought that ministry was, you know, just um, assembling people, whatever, whatever our metrics of success, to me, it feels like this is um, the next two to three years are going to be a window of opportunity for us as leaders to meet this incredible emotional, mental health, financial, vocational, relational, spiritual needs of a society of, and societies around the world. That's that's like, w- what's the most important thing? You know, the pandemic at least has revealed we we need we need more of each other. We need more of God, and we need healthy leaders to be able to 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 be able to create those thriving churches that produce the flourishing people that we all signed up to be in ministry to, 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 to help facilitate, to help cultivate. I completely agree with that. And you know what? We're going to figure out how to reach people. That's not that hard. We have digital, we have physical. That's going to resolve. Right now we're going through a massive upheaval. But the question would be 24 months from now, three years from now, are you going to emerge healthy into that space or so exhausted that when the dust settles... <laughs> Yeah, you haven't even got energy for today, let alone for tomorrow. So I want to see you emerge healthier out of this. And then we can solve our leadership problems. We'll figure that out. Yeah, the book is At Your Best, How to Get Time, Energy, and Priorities Working in Your Favor. There it is, if you're watching. And um, uh, Carrie, I've benefited so much from our friendship and just all the mm. things that that we've been learning together and the 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 side conversations and I appreciate you. I consider you one of my dear friends. So thanks Same. so much for sharing your, your wisdom with us today. Uh, David, I love you. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. You're, you're pretty good at this interview thing. You know, I think you got a <laughs> future. Don't, don't get discouraged. And uh, you're one of my absolute favorite people. Thank you for your friendship and thank you for helping me and uh, just millions of other leaders uh, try to figure out where to point the compass. So thank thanks you. so much, friend. Well, uh, for Pastor Appreciation Month this October, Aspen, uh, which is our partner for this Making Space series, uh, is giving away copies of Carrie's new book. So for a limited offer, uh, go visit their website at aspengroup.com slash churchpulse to sign up to receive your free copy of At Your Best today. That's awesome. And this will be a, a multi-part series where we're looking at making space, making space today for rest and renewal and relationships in the life of leadership. So 
Uh, thanks so much, Carrie, for being a part of this. You were in the hot seat today and I got the, the chance of being an interview. And so uh, thanks so much listeners for being a part of Church Pulse Weekly uh, over these many months. We hope you benefited from today's episode. And if you like this, uh, feel free to recommend it to your friends and uh, sign up to hear more. Uh, it's been our privilege as uh, as two guys who were thrust right into the pandemic like you were uh, to try to help you as leaders navigate this incredible 18 months. Uh, so many highs, so many so many lows. Uh, and um, we're just here cheering for you uh, at Church Pulse Weekly at Barna and at Kerry Newhoff uh, and his, his organization. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast. Join us next week for more insights on navigating constant change in an era of disruption and how to stay connected to the people in your church.